You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues podcast with your hosts Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains, DLTs, and cryptocurrencies. In today's episode, we're going to be revisiting the concepts of Web 3.0, how a decentralized storage solution such as Filecoin fits into this new paradigm as an enabler, and how decentralized storage itself can solve a major problem for NFTs. To discuss this in detail, we are joined by Jonathan Victor, who is the head of NFTs at Filecoin. Jonathan, a very warm welcome to you on our show from Nikhil and myself. Yeah, thanks for having me. To begin, could you tell our audience a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, and how you got involved in the blockchain and crypto space? Yeah. Um, so I guess if we zoom all the way back, the first time I heard about crypto things was during Bitcoin's first run-up in 2013. Uh at the time, I was still in college, so I uh, did not have a ton of money to spend, but I remember avidly watching with a bunch of friends just trying to yeah, figure out if we should buy some and get in. Uh, at the time, we were like, ah, it's too expensive. For, we've already missed the boat. Um, and I think Bitcoin was around like 1000 at that point. So that was definitely wrong. <laughs> um, but fast forward to about 20, late 2015, early 2016. Um, I was working at my last job, uh, this company called Palantir, and one of my coworkers was super into Ethereum. Um, and so they've been a part of the DAO uh, around the DAO hack. Uh, like, uh, I think they, despite all of like the turbulence, were super excited about this new idea of smart contracts. Um, and so while I didn't fully grok what they were going to be useful for, uh, it was because of that coworker that I ended up really digging into the space. Um, and so I started listening to as many talks as I could, reading as many white papers. I was just trying to understand what was getting everyone else so excited. Um, and it was because of that that I came across uh, a talk that Juan, uh, Juan Benet, who's the founder of Protocol Labs, he gave about IPFS. Um, and that sort of was the first thing inside of the, the blockchain space that really clicked for me. Um, and so while it took a while, like I, I wrapped my head around smart contracts and I could tell it was use- like unique. I couldn't tell how it was going to be useful. Um, I think IPFS made much more sense to me right away. And that was actually the first entry point into what can people do with blockchains and what will this space be useful for? Not because of IPFS specifically, but as we start thinking about, well, like distributed systems overall, and then as a complement to that, where blockchains might be able to offer some opportunities through things like Filecoin. Um, And so I actually, I mean, it took me a little bit. So I I was honestly, just like a passive observer. I held some crypto, dabbled a little bit with dApps. Um, but my first real foray in like making my way into Web3 came around the middle of 2019. Um, I've been at my last job for about four years and some change. And <laughs> yeah, sometimes if you're at a place for a while, you may not be unhappy. I actually really liked the work that I was doing, thought I was working with very sharp people. But when you're at a spot for a, a bit of time, you ask the question, are you going to be a lifer? Are there more important problems out there? And I think for me, Web3 sort of presented this really unique opportunity where it was still the middle of like a bear cycle. Um, I think a lot of folks had walked away from the space and you were left with just who are the true believers and like what did they see as like this vision for what the future can be? 
Um, and that to me was super exciting. Uh, There's a lot of people who were very passionate. It was a lot of things that were from like first principles. Um, and although there was a lot of questions that weren't fully answered um, about like, what were the ultimate use cases? What are all the things that people are really gonna, like what's gonna stick? Um, I think for me at least, uh, it felt like there was enough of a bear there that it was worth like making the leap. Um, yeah, and then since then, uh, everything has snowballed a bit, <laughs> I think, 2019 to today. Um, I think we've seen like the rise of DeFi, NFTs really breaking into the mainstream. I think we're now seeing hosts of other types of applications, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. Um, but yeah, it's been a, a bit of a roller coaster. Great. Uh, you you mentioned that you know when you got started, uh, IPFS sort of caught your attention and you know it made sense to you. Did you have any sort of uh, software engineering background or like in distributed systems or anything like that? Not distributed systems. Um, so I studied electrical and computer engineering uh, back in college, and at my when I was working at Palantir, I was doing more like data analysis, so like big data stuff in general. Um, and so yeah, definitely not <laughs> like. Like I write code, but it was like the stuff that just gets stuff done. I wasn't like uh, an architect or anything like that. Um, but I think the thing that made a lot of sense to me is a lot of the work that Palantir does uh, sometimes touches like contexts where you're not connected to the internet. Like you may be in remote regions, you may be disconnected. And I think if you sort of are in environments where you're operating out in the fields, whether that be like in a factory, which may not have the same connectivity in all different parts, or it could be in remote regions, um, you really are forced to start considering like how do you build systems and applications in a way that can be resilient to like uh, bandwidth connectivity and like seamlessly sync and things like that. Um, so a lot of the architecture designs of IPFS uh, felt naturally aligned with some of the, uh, the architecture decisions that I think, um, yeah, I had seen other systems sort of employ. So now to move on to some of the things that we want to discuss today, uh, John, uh, I guess it would be good to start off around this concept uh, that we have touched frequently. You mentioned it, the Web 3.0 uh, concept, right? And uh, it's it's been a sort of a buzzword for a few years now, uh, but uh, it means different things for different people. You know, it uh, encompasses many different aspects like machine learning, uh, metaverses and several other things. So, uh, Jonathan, would you like to give us your vision of what Web 3.0 is, uh, what is its significance, and uh, how it's different from the existing Web 2.0 paradigm? Yeah, so it's interesting. I've heard different people's mental models, and I'll give you two that I think get some things correct, but some things kind of incorrect, and I'll give you mine. Um, so the first that I've heard is like, Web 1 was eaten by Web 2, and Web 2 will be eaten by Web 3. And so what we're going to have is this future of the internet where everything runs on these like distributed protocols, and like Web 2 will be sort of like uh, eaten at, like destroyed by uh, the incentive structures of Web 3. I think sort of like a corollary, maybe a complement to that, is this idea of like properties of the web. So if Web 1 was about read, so you could put up a blog and anyone could read it, Web 2 is about read-write, where you could post something on social media and anyone else can read it. Then the third property of Web3 is ownership, where you can say like read, write, own, where protocols become these like services that effectively anyone can tap into. Communities can own parts of the internet. Um, and that's, I think, the one that's more popularized by Chris Dixon from A16Z. Um, and I think like both of these touch aspects that are sort of true. I think in the first one, this idea that Web3 is going to be like, uh, a dominating force. It's going to be like highly permeating. I think I agree with that. I would slightly challenge this idea that like Web3 eats Web2 because I wouldn't argue that Web2 ate Web1. I think it's just like 
an evolution, so it like extends the functionality. Um, and then I, I would challenge in the Chris Dixon framing of read, write, own, I don't think ownership is actually the property that we care about. I think it's one of the properties, but it's not like the defining feature. Um, and I think the danger of framing Web3 is about ownership is more that <laughs> it paints a picture of like microtransactions and this dystopian future where everything is paywalled, uh, which I think instantly gets some reactions from folks. Um, so when I talk about Web3, I like to talk about it as the third property, not being ownership, but being verifiability. Um, and so rather than thinking of these things as breaking changes, where it's like web one is now replaced by web two and web two is replaced by web three, I would rather think about them as coordinate space. Um, so like web one is your x-axis, which is the reading property. Web two is the y-axis, which is read-write. Um, and so now you have this two-dimensional plane where you could probably put every application that's been built so far. And that just sort of like lives on this plane. And on that plane is an efficient frontier of like for each application, what trade-off space between like how much do you want users to generate content versus just pure consumption, what makes sense. Um, what's interesting about Web3 is now we can add a Z dimension. Uh, and that Z dimension, that Z axis is verifiability. And the thing that verifiability gives you is the ability to say, how much trust do I want to have in the system, whether it's trusting the content itself. So that's where like an IPFS hash might come in, whether it's trusting aspects of ownership, which is where maybe blockchains come in. Um, I think this verifiability property gives you a whole new way of building applications. And the idea isn't to say that every application is going to live somewhere in the Z dimension. Um, I think the important observation is that the efficient frontier is not like a specific line, it's actually a surface in this three-dimensional space. And so you'll have a full spectrum of applications, some which maybe like the financial applications, the things of higher value will require uh, this trustless property. And so they will exist in this more like blockchain-y space, but then things like social media posts and some of these other aspects maybe require slightly different trade-offs. And it's not as required that everything lives directly on chain, or at least not in a globally censorship resistant yada yada sort of way. Um, and I think that spectrum and that trade-off is the part that's actually more interesting because in this formalization, you could think of sort of like the Z dimension being an answer of like, if every application that we've seen today is uh, sort of bound by this fact that we haven't had the technology to build out the trustless like equivalent, um, whatever the true efficient frontier is, if it's like this three-dimensional surface, um, the 2D projection is the thing that we have today. And so by having this new dimension, maybe there's a version that we can build that actually locks, unlocks efficiencies. Um, and I think like as a microcosm of it, you could look at like Coinbase versus Uniswap. Um, like Uniswap today has days where it does more volume than Coinbase in trades. And I think that's like a testament to like where, where are things kind of going, where it's not saying that Coinbase is necessarily evil or anything like that. I think it's just showing that there is an inefficiency that comes in when you're a centralized organization. It's not just the fact that like there's real world sort of like constraints uh, or that you have like a much higher employee base or that you have to like manually do all this work to integrate protocols uh, to support them. You have to work with market makers, all of that. Uh, like all of those are just like functions of like living in this like sort of like centralized world versus in the world of Uniswap, it's just a smart contract that says, hey, anyone can contribute liquidity and basically anyone who wants to trade can now hit the marginal uh, trading liquidity of any pair that's out there. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think this is where, um, yeah, the, the mental model of like web two versus web three 
Um, it's not saying that one is going to be there versus the other. I think it's saying that we've now brought a new dimension uh, that people can build applications in. And so people will make different trade-offs. And I think we're going to see different types of efficiencies sort of emerge. That's a great uh, uh, outline. And, uh, and I appreciate that uh, you brought your uh, your, your viewpoint into this. And, and, and I like the idea of a dimension. And I think uh, I agree with you that uh, it's it's a it's a dimension rather than uh, you know like an evolution where somebody eats up something else. Even even today, uh, we've got plenty of static websites around that uh, that are making lots of money <laughs> and and uh, um, uh, you know that kind of uh, can be argued that they are web one uh, versions of things, right? Uh, but uh, to double click a little bit on what what you said. Uh, while I agree that there is a dimension, what I'm actually would like to get a little bit more uh, understanding of is you mentioned uh, that this dimension would be verifiability, right? That is the key property as opposed to ownership. What, I, what I'd like to understand a little bit more from you is what in your mind is the difference between verifiability and ownership? Well, so I think verifiability is the ability to know that something is is i mean <laughs> so like a good example of this um with the blockchain when we're actually saying ownership the thing that we can actually do is we can go look at the blockchain and we can verify who owns what so i'd argue like ownership is only a property of like the is a sub property of verifiability where like if you couldn't verify someone owns something like there is no or like if the world cannot globally agree that you own something if you can't verify that fact then do you really own it right like you need other yeah but then but that. then the act of verifying something proves ownership right so for example uh if you take ipfs um uh the uh the fact that you have a cid of a particular uh file right it verifies that okay you know what file exactly are you talking about and uh but uh, i i guess ownership uh would be a it, that would be a necessary condition for ownership may not be a sufficient condition uh ownership what i would argue is just one step ahead where you basically say okay i got the cid but i've also got this i don't know uh, secret uh signature that is uh uh that i can prove that that allows me to prove that that particular file belongs to me as opposed to you Right. I think, yeah, um, so like w one way of framing it is I think ownership is a subset of the cases of verifiability and to maybe contrast it uh, to make it maybe a little clearer. When we talk about blockchains, I think blockchains give us a notion of ownership. Like when we think of an NFT, people think about a piece of content they can like own uh, through the NFT. Um, in mm -hmm. a similar way, when people own tokens on a blockchain, they have a notion of ownership for a protocol that might like be a service or something else that other people sort of participate in. Um, I think the thing that's interesting is when you have a CID that doesn't, I mean, the CID gives you the verifiability that if someone hands you a piece of content, that it was the piece of content that you were looking for, but it doesn't mean anything about your ability to own a thing. It just means your ability to specify that thing. Um, and I think ownership, the reason I highlight this is I think Web3 is a broader category than just blockchains alone. Um, and I would put things like IPFS, Secure Scuttlebutt, any of these distributed technologies that really start rethinking client server architectures as being part of the Web3 sort of like superset. <laughs> um, and that's why I think yeah. ownership is a limiting constraint because it 
focuses us into like the blockchain world where it may not, I think blockchains are a part of Web3, but they're not the entirety of Web3 in my view. Right. No, and and uh, uh, it's, a, it's a very good point. And it uh, actually uh, kind of puts me in mind of, uh, uh, of a previous technology uh, which kind of went down this path, but in my, my view, I think, uh, uh, and, and, my view, I think they still, I, I would argue still constitute Web3 and which is basically the whole idea of bit torrents and uh, torrenting, uh, technology, right? So if you look at, uh, file sharing, uh, uh back in the day, uh, I'm sure this is, uh, ancient news for you, you guys, but for, for me, basically, uh, uh, after the whole Napster rise and fall, there was another set of, uh, file sharing protocols that came out called, uh, Kademlia, uh, eDonkey and Kazaa. And all of these basically had, uh, certain characteristics, which I find quite familiar when I look at IPFS, right? So all of them had distributed hash tables. You had, uh, pieces of, uh, uh, content being distributed, uh, and, and verified, uh, by, by their hashes. Uh, the only thing I think that was kind of where they kind of missed the boat a little bit, uh, was that they had centralized, uh, or they had applications to the handle the uh, management of, uh, the addressing and the content, right? So, uh, they had basically uh, codex or in a, in a, a proprietary protocols to kind of not not exactly proprietary open source but uh, binary protocols that kind of uh, uh, held held together the uh, various chunks of data. Uh, BitTorrent basically came up with a a layer on top of it afterwards, which is called the magnet uh, link, and which basically is essentially similar to your the the ipfs idea of a cid right uh where it basically gave you a link to a particular website or a uh, http link to a particular uh file the file which basically had uh it was a torrent file which had had a set of hashes that specified uh the pieces of a particular uh piece of content right and and then you could you could go and get that um what I like about IPFS is that it takes it one level further and basically says, okay, we're not, we're not even going to put, put it in a file. The entire actual addressing or the URI of it basically is, is the identifier of the file. And it's, uh, you, you build a, you build a Merkle tree of that and join everything together. So, so and the, the point I, I'm trying to make over there, I guess, is that web three, like you very correctly pointed out, existed before blockchains. I think it's nice to kind of point out that uh, it is more than just blockchain technology. Uh, and where I mean, what I mean by that is that it's not only, uh, you know, distributed uh, proof of work, uh, uh, sorry, proof of work, proof of stake type uh, consensus protocols and uh, all that, What whatever we kind of like, the, the pieces that we call, put together and call a blockchain is just one aspect of Web 3.0. What do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Jay Graber from Blue Sky, um, that the the nonprofit that t- Twitter spun up uh, to look at or mm-hmm. like design an pro- open source social media protocol. Um, yeah, a I'm aware post. of Blue Sky itself. I'm not aware of uh, the gentleman. Uh, I, I was under the impression Blue Sky was uh, Jack Dorsey's pet project. Oh, so Jay uh, Jay's actually a she. Um, so Jay is. Oh, okay. um, the, the CEO of right, this guy. Okay. 
Um, but yeah, so uh, Jay put out a great blog post about uh, self-certifying protocols as uh, sort of like a reframe of, rather than using the overloaded term of Web3, uh, talking about self-certifying protocols, which is about like this verifiability property, uh, which I thought mm -hmm. was like extremely on the money, uh, which is definitely worth reading for your listeners. Absolutely. Yeah, I think we uh, we should put that uh, in the show notes. I'll, 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 I'll dig it up and uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Uh, yeah, I mean, so uh, to uh, move on, uh, KK, uh, I think uh, this is a good point to kind of maybe jump off into IPFS. Maybe. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I guess it's uh, the right time to take a deeper look into uh, the project that you're involved with, Jonathan, uh, that is Filecoin. Uh, which again, it's focused on decentralized storage, right? So for our audience, could you explain what is Filecoin? What is IPFS? Uh, how decentralized storage works as a whole? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's easier to start with IPFS and that'll build into how to think about Filecoin. Um, so IPFS, uh, the simplest way of describing it is IPFS tries to change how content is referenced around the web. Um, like today, when most of us go to URLs, we're using HTTP. And what we're doing is we're going to something like google.com, and that's going to route us to a specific location. Um, so that's like bouncing us to some IP address and then into like a path uh, for whatever the content is that we're looking for. And that works in a lot of ways in a really nice way. Um, but there's pieces of friction that we've all run into, whether that be 404s, so maybe like content disappears, or maybe we go to a website and the content has changed there. So it's not the thing we were looking for, or maybe it's been that URL is no longer owned by the same person. And so the website's totally different. Um, these are all sort of like points of fragility that come with location-based addressing, which is what HTTP is. Um, so the thing that IPFS tries to change is to say, well, what if we could reference content not based on where it lives and then just hope that that reference is resilient over time? What if instead we could use a canonical global reference uh, that specifically is talking just about that data? Um, so specifically what IPFS does is it uses a hash of the data itself as like a fingerprint. And so the references that IPFS uses, so if you go to an IPFS link, it's usually something like IPFS colon slash slash uh, and then QM and a bunch of like letters and numbers after. Um, and so IPFS uses literally a, a hash of the data itself as the canonical reference and the way in which that hash is constructed, there's like a spec that anyone can sort of like interpret it. Um, but the reason this is super powerful is it means that you've really changed the paradigm by which computers sort of like think about and look up data. So if you build an application using IPFS, you're not reliant on a specific server or a specific company to be the thing that is like making that content available. It's not tied to like John's AWS bucket or anything specifically. Um, it's just talking about the content. And so if you wanna move providers, so if you wanna store the data on your own computer, if you wanna move it to, or like if it's pinned in a user's browser, so something like Brave, if it's um, being made available through something that you host in the cloud, like it doesn't actually matter from the perspective of the application. Um, the thing the application cares about is that it's asking for a piece of data, regardless of where it got the data, it can sort of process it. Um, so like IPFS, the, the big idea is really about content addressing um, and sort of like changing the way in which computers talk about data. And then once you start pulling on that thread, you open up a whole can of worms. Because um, like once you start saying like, okay, cool, I can now ask for data, not by where it lives, but by what the data is, 
you start asking the question about, well, how do I find out who else has this data? So there's that whole content routing problem. You have another problem where it's like, well, how do I move data around <laughs> from like node to node? Uh, and how do I modularize sort of like the ways in which I pass information around? That's where like libp2p comes in from like the networking side. Um, and so IPFS really is like a, a suite of many protocols together, but it's tackling that like higher order problem of how do we reference content around the web? Um, so one bucket of problems that IPFS does not directly answer for itself is to say, well, how do I know for sure someone on the internet has a copy of this data? Um, the way IPFS works today, um, IPFS, anyone can run it. You can run it, as I said, on your computer. Your users can run it. It can be run in the cloud. You can do it wherever. Um, but what IPFS sort of guarantees for you is like a one to n property. If there's between one and n copies of this data on the network, like the network can find it for you and serve it back. Uh, but it doesn't guarantee for you that zero to one. Uh, the only way to know for sure that some piece of content's on the network is for you to basically run it yourself or to like pay someone to run it for you. So this is where Filecoin comes in as a blockchain protocol. Um, what Filecoin aims to solve for is how to answer that question in a trustless way. Um, so Filecoin today uh, has a storage network and that storage network allows you to say, um, I as a client want to store some number of copies of data with different storage providers around the world. And those pro storage providers are required to prove to the Filecoin network that they're in, still in possession of that data and that they're storing that data correctly over time. Um, there's a lot of really cool cryptography that goes into this, um, but one of the neat features about how Filecoin works is because of how it uses zero-knowledge proofs in a specific way, um, the Filecoin network is about 18 ebibytes in storage capacity, so about the size of like Google mid-2010s. <laughs> um, so it's like a storage network that's on par with like internet-scale storage services, um, but the blockchain itself is still verifiable by individuals, because the thing that's written on chain is actually quite tiny. Um, and so like Filecoin itself, you can think of it more as like a settlement layer for data, where it's answering this question of, hey, who's supposed to store what? Are they still doing the thing that they claim to do? And it's enforcing through cryptography and economics that incentive structure to make sure that someone is actually doing the thing that they said to this network that they were going to do. Um, but that's like what the storage network is doing. Um, Filecoin itself has a much broader roadmap. Um, you can think of Filecoin sort of as creating open services for all the elements of the cloud. Um, today, we are just doing storage services, but down the line, uh, people are working on retrieval markets, so like permissionless CDNs. People are working on things for compute, so you can do like ETL type jobs, so like uh, transformation of data as well. Um, and then, of course, like the standard blockchain things of smart contracts, so you can write programs around the state of the data on the network. Um, but this is like getting into the longer roadmap, but that's the, the quick hit of both like, what is IPFS and what is Filecoin? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so uh, this is this is interesting and thanks for uh, uh, laying it out uh, for us, Jonathan. Uh, one question I had, so uh, when I've read about IPFS and the way you've described IPFS, is described as a protocol, You it's a, it's a URI, you enter the, uh, you can, if you if you've got this URI with the CID, the content identifier in it, uh, and as long as anybody your own, if you have it in your own machine, or if somebody some of your friends have a copy of that particular file, uh, you can get it right. Uh, what uh, 
I, I guess what the gap for me over here basically is, is that uh, how does that discovery happen? Because uh, Filecoin, if I'm not mistaken, is one of the providers. You can also have your own server somewhere. You can have somebody else's server somewhere. How does the IP... So when you type in this uh, URI in your application or in, into a uh, IPFS node or uh, IPFS application, how does that IP application... Where does that application have to actually go to, right? Because... In, in, if you look at that, if you look at the equivalent in HTTP, that is the uh, that is the role that is that a DNS uh, provider or a DNS service kind of fulfills, right? So, what is the DNS for IPFS? Uh, how does IPFS know which universe of network nodes to actually ask the question as to do you have this particular file or not? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so today, that's primarily through the IPFS DHT. Um, so folks who are providing records of like what, so like if you're running a node, your node will be providing records into the DHT of what content that you're persisting. Um, and so through the DHT, if you make this request, you can get hopped around to find the content that you're looking for. Um, so so when you run an IPFS node, is it going out and connecting to other IPFS nodes? To share this DHT? Yeah, so you can, uh, there's like a public DHT. People set up private ones too. So I think there's a couple teams that have, um, like I think Audius has like their own side one as well. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a public DHT, which is like the default that most people are connected to when they, they first sort of like bootstrap a node. Um, but you can configure uh, this in a number of different ways. There's also, I think, a few different implementations of DHTs that people are working on. Um, so there's like mm -hmm. a lot of modularity that can be built as well. But by default, I think there's uh, the public DHT, and I think it's using Kademlia under the hood. Okay. So so this particular uh, public DHT, is it run by the IPFS foundation or is it done by you, Filecoin? Who, who's actually running the uh, resources for that particular I think it, oh, the way IPFS nodes are run, I think each node is contributing uh, like its own records in. Um, so it's not like it's maintained by an individual organization. Uh, it's like the, the network of nodes themselves. Okay, so when I download, say if I go to my, I, I, I am a, I'm on a Mac and I install IPFS, you know, I do brew install IPFS, right? Uh, so I get IPFS on my Mac and does it have like a list of this, these nodes that uh, these uh, other public nodes that that are having this dht on it or do i need to f add it later myself or um i believe when you are like starting up there is uh this is an area where i am less close to it so this is my yeah, yeah, sure. from a few years ago i believe uh -huh. there's like some bootstrap nodes but i think like during the like boot up process of an ipfs node there is a whole discovery flow uh, where you like uh, peer uh, ping out over libp 2 p and discover other nodes, and then through other nodes you discover other nodes. Um, so I think like uh, through discovery you end up finding the rest of the network. Um, okay, so so it sounds to me uh, a lot like how how we used to do it with Kademlia back in the day. There is a set of known nodes as okay, these are known starting uh, bootstraps that can then point you to other places uh, to look. Okay, that makes sense. I don't know that for sure, so we should double check that. <laughs> yeah, probably. For the audience. Um, I'm like, yeah, yeah. 
56% sure that's the case. <laughs> okay, cool. That, that's great. So so we've got the IPFS picture and IPFS basically gives you this uh, idea of, uh, okay, I've got this URL and I, I can get the file and Filecoin basically talks about or, or deals with how do you actually decentralize uh, storage of this. And uh, this is all great. Uh, and I, I know you kind of refer to it as kind of like further down or maybe it's, and, and you can tell me if it is like not, not sub, something that's currently supported. When we talk about this as file storage, right? And we say, okay, this particular file is hashed and therefore it is content addressable. Uh, the thing that kind of gets me is that that means that most of the content that you're talking about or most of the data that you're talking about is necessarily static, right? I wouldn't be able to do this with say a database file, right? So like uh, the, the data, data file of a database in it because uh, the database is continuously inserting data, updating data, changing data all the time. So it's kind of going to keep changing by, by definition. That means that uh, it's going to keep changing the signature of that data store file, right? So uh, does this mean that at as 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 of now, uh, the IPFS protocol and Filecoin uh, blockchain and and this whole infrastructure is uh, geared towards static content versus dynamic content, or is that is that is that something of a simplification on my side? I think it's a little bit of a simplification, but we also might be treading into areas where I will again. I, so I know some of these answers, but I want to make sure I don't misrepresent something here. I think like one yeah. important note about how the data is structured is it turns into a Merkle DAG. Um, and mm -hmm. so like the, the important feature is even if you have mutating content, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't have uh, a representation of that through IPFS. Um, and so this idea that you basically can have like a stream of diffs and like the thing, like let's say you have like a log that you're appending to, you can add like more and more branches uh, or like you can extend out your tree and doesn't mean that you're mm -hmm. rewriting the entire file. You're adding just like incremental deltas uh, to the, yes. the DAG itself. Um, so th there's that. Um, I think the other feature, uh, and there's a really good talk I can link you to um, from another team in our ecosystem, uh, Fission, who has sort of like designed ways in which you could build like databases on top of this. And it does require mm -hmm. like a slight rethinking of how you would sort of structure the records inside of that database and how you would build some of the writing. Um, but I think it like it looks slightly different where, uh, again, I want to link you to Xpeed's talk because she will give you a better, more in the weeds description of like how would one think about building a database on top of these things. But I don't think it's actually out of bounds. Um, I think it like is much more related to the sort of like offline DBs that we've seen other folks build. And we've had people build mm. databases on top as well. So things like OrbitDB have been built on, on IPFS. Um, there's folks like Ceramic right. who are building like support for mutable data. So it's definitely doable. Uh, I unfortunately am not deep enough in the architectural decisions that those teams have made. I'm like, how do they right. make that? Uh, but I think I've heard other people give talks about how they would support these things, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I vaguely remember uh, you mentioned Orbit and I, I think I remember so uh, it sounds like a lot of them are basically append-only uh, data files, and the way they're kind of doing this is essentially kind of 
like you said, creating diffs of uh, what all changes are there and then taking snapshots of it and then just creating a log of a set of snapshots. So basically kind of builds. So there's yeah. so like textile threads, I think, works a little bit closer to that. Um, I think you can build. So um, again, I don't want to like speak out of turn where I'm not as deep. This is not my area of expertise. Um, but uh, I'm fairly certain you can actually build, uh, but it will look different. So like there's a team that was working on like uh, even just like a normal SQL querying language on top of this stuff. Um, like you should be able to build, I think, a full system. Well, you know what? I, I will send you specific links. Uh, maybe this will be better for, uh, yeah, an addendum to the podcast. Um, but yeah, I can send you some links uh, where Juan and XP talk about this. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, that's, I mean, to be clear, it's, it's just something that I was curious about and it's perfectly fine. Uh, we can, we can look at it, uh, as an addendum or maybe there's a follow up episode in it somewhere. Uh, moving on a little bit, uh, I think, uh, let's, let's kind of like focus on a, on a use case, right? So it's always beneficial to kind of look at, say, okay, uh, what's the use case that Web3, uh, and, and the IPFS Filecoin, uh, infrastructure can really help with? And I think, uh, you, uh, one of the obvious ones is NFTs, right? So, uh, maybe you could lay out, uh, uh ideas that you have, uh, around the NFT, how, how you could improve the NFT ecosystem right now using IPFS and Filecoin and Web3. Yeah. So, I mean, when we think about what are NFTs to begin with, I think a lot of people think of them in sort of the simplest form, like static object, uh, like profile picture sort of thing, maybe art. Um, I think like the interesting question, even for creatives is, well, how do I uh, sort of like unconstrain myself for what I can represent as an NFT? Maybe I want to build like a full virtual world, something that's like an extremely large file, Maybe I want to make something that mutates over time. So like I have a game object that I want to change. Um, and I think like the important question that we think about quite a lot with IPFS and Falcoin is like the reason that these are interesting tools when it comes to NFTs is because of the verifiability property. Um, like you could easily build an NFT where the thing that you do is you just use a link to someone's Amazon bucket, but then you run into a problem if that person stops paying for that bucket uh, maybe for some reason or another, the files are deleted, like it leads to points of fragility. And so the NFT itself has some fragility baked into it. And so the more interesting question is like, how do you enable NFTs without sacrificing on some of these core properties? Um, so I think like from a scale perspective, IPFS and Filecoin by default have a lot of very good answers just based on how these systems are uh, architected. Uh, like IPFS itself, the way it structures data automatically does some deduplication, which can make it nicer if you're streaming things. Um, and also by being content addressed, you can sort of like have the data be stored, not just from one system. So like not just Filecoin, it can be stored in as many places as you'd like. Um, Filecoin obviously is a complement to that, having both like the scale so it can store as much data as people need to. Like I would posit that the totality of NFT data is like under a petabyte of data maybe like under two petabytes, but probably not more than that. Um, and yeah, Filecoin has storage capacity more than enough to store that thousands of times over. Um, so I think like the, the thing that IPFS and Filecoin sort of out of the box offer solves some of the basic issues people have. Um, I think some of the interesting questions are how do we do things like mutability? Um, so if I have a game, like a, I have a Charmander NFT that I want to enable to evolve into a Charizard, 
and I don't want to lose that verifiability property, how can I build these structures and how do I think about like permissioning? So who has the right to update what this NFT should look like? Um, I think this is where it gets really exciting. Some of the other tools that are sort of deeper into the IPFS Filecoin stack. So things like IPNS, which is like the naming system, um, which allows you to use like the hash of a public key to update content. Um, there's a bunch of other tools that are sort of inside of this toolkit. Um, where again, the, the point is not saying that uh, like <laughs> these things are more enablers more than anything else, but it's really just trying to think through the lens of if you're a creator, how do you actually just be unconstrained so you can make whatever content you'd like without having to worry about is this thing going to get destroyed in a number of years if someone stops paying an Amazon bill? Um, yeah. Uh, to, to, to kind of explore the, the Amazon bill idea, uh, uh, but correct me if I'm wrong, isn't Filecoin also a marketplace? Don't you also have to pay for storing storage over there? You do. Um, and I think the important difference here is how do you pay and like who can pay? Um, so okay. one of the interesting features, and like this is why I would say Filecoin alone is just one answer to the question. I would say the first order property that you want for an NFT is content addressability. Um, I would even say like the reason to use content addressability is it's possible every storage layer that we have today is incorrect. Um, and if they are incorrect, maybe what we want to do in the future is use DNA as like the storage medium of choice. Well, with a content hash, you could write that into a DNA string and yeah, uh, <laughs> the data is there, you know? Um, so I would say yeah. like, the, the first thing I would always recommend is use content hashes. Um, and then the reason for Filecoin, I think it really comes down to like what properties does it give you? I think the verifiability property is the main one, um, but for things like ongoing payment, um, that's where the fact that these are public, uh, this is public infrastructure means other people could take over payment. It's not like it's locked into just, oh, the only person who can like be the source of funds for the ongoing storage is the original creator. It could be a smart Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Be... Yeah, I mean, you could, you, could, you could conceivably have like a smart contract that uh, pays into the NFT and then somebody just keeps who, whoever owns it or who is interested in it pays into the smart contract and the smart contract continues paying. J just to go a couple of steps deeper into that. So sure. Filecoin has this service called NFT.storage and right now I believe uh, you have clients like OpenSea, Rarible, NFT Port and many others. So for our audience, could you just like briefly walk through like if somebody were to use the service, how, how would they go about it? Yeah, so NFT storage is a public commons for NFT. You can think of it sort of like the Internet Archive for NFTs. Um, so it has IPFS nodes, which are actually publicly funded by Protocol Labs. Um, these are places where it's just to make the content accessibility super quick for the NFTs. Um, there's public NFT gateways that are also sort of indexed to the content that's sort of being discovered as people do their uploading. Uh, but really, it's just saying, like, look, if you're using a content hash, uh, this is additional resiliency. Um, the content uh, can be made available through our IPFS nodes. It's stored onto Filecoin. Um, and eventually, NFT storage, when smart contracts launch on Filecoin, will turn into its own DAO. Um, and like the neat thing about content addressing is it's not like a one or the other sort of thing. It's like a union of all the people who are offering their storage capacity into the network, uh, or they're offering their storage services into this uh, sort of like hosting this content. Um, and so, yeah, NFT storage really is just making the storage of NFTs as simple as possible. Um, so there's like three ways that people typically interact with it. There's a JavaScript library. Uh, the cool thing it does is it actually calculates the CID client side 
So when you upload content, it's not like you're uploading an image and hoping you get back the right fingerprint. You're calculating that CID locally. You can add it to your own local IPFS node. You can send it to another pending service if you'd like, or you can upload it to NMP storage. Um, so that's all happening client side. Um, there's also an HTTP API. So if you want to just like use the car file generator yourself and then uh, do the same sort of upload, there's one there as well. Um, and then there's also uh, a pitting API. So if you're already using IPFS, you can just configure this for additional resiliency. Um, and then NFT storage, what it does is it has these public IPFS nodes where it pins this content, makes it available, um, advertises into the specific NFT gateway. So for fast reads, uh, that gateway is tuned specifically looking at NFT content. Um, but then it also has a pipeline where it batches this content into Filecoin. And so there's a network of storage providers that are all waiting on uh, in this queue uh, to basically bid on these deals to store the data. Uh, and then they're proving to the network that this data is still being stored. Um, so there's actually an API uh, that you can hit where if you query for any CID that's been stored through NFT uh, storage or been like redundantly added into NFT storage, even if it wasn't the primary place it was stored, um, if it's been pushed through that queue and has landed with any of these miners, uh, you can query this uh, API to see like who are the miners and uh, yeah, what deals are they in? You could verify that against the Filecoin blockchain, the health, the data, all of that good stuff. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so with the NFT storage and the API thing, so does this, is this kind of, you said it is a public uh, or a open con or commons kind of a thing. So does that mean that anybody can just sign up and upload their images onto the thing or does it have to be uh, somehow tied to a blockchain or something? What are the kind of limits over there? Yeah, I mean, so it's a public good. Um, so I think, uh, like anything that's an NFT uh, is good to be stored. Um, I think for the NFTs themselves, uh, so I think for a lot of this, the way that it works is we have indexers that are running across these different blockchains. So for folks who are doing like pre-mints, of course, uh, it's not like they're going to like eject something if it hasn't landed directly on a blockchain just yet. Uh, but there are like abuse things that are in place as well. Um, but ultimately, the thing that NFT storage is really just enabling is to say, if you are an NFT creator, we want to make it as simple as possible for you to do the, the quote unquote right thing. So you're not thinking about, oh, well, I just want to like make this 3D like piece of art or I want to make this video file and this is going to be onerously expensive. How do we just leverage the cheapest thing that's out there in order to make sure that this content is actually persisted? Um, and I think for NFT storage, part of like the motivation behind this is sort of also an observation. Like if you think about how the actual flow of these things work today, so like uh, the thing that kicked off a lot of the new cycles about NFTs, uh, Maker's Place uh, sold that Beeple for I think it was like $69 million. Um, it would be really bad for even OpenSea if <laughs> Maker's Place accidentally messed up, right? And like, if they were the only ones who were hosting that content that goes away, that's a 2% resale fee that OpenSea can't capture. And so there is this interesting aspect of like NFTs and the data that we have in this uh, space being sort of like a public commons where we all sort of rely on it. Um, so the goal with NFT storage is to create like pretty easy inroads where we can get like basically uh, easy uh, communal like availability uh, for the NFTs and the tooling that people look to build on top of this stuff. Um, so there's other teams in our ecosystem that are looking at things like public NFT indexes. So for folks who are trying to build querying tools, which can be really helpful for wallets, um, folks who are looking at other sort of like education initiatives, 
um, other public good sort of like services around NFTs as well. Um, I think we see like a lot of enthusiasm primarily just because almost by the nature of how this data is structured, you get a lot of network effects and you get a lot of value out of people not having to reinvent the wheel. And one of the nice features about using these verifiable structures is you're not locked into any one specific architecture. If someone wants to port all of these CIDs into another system, it's super trivial to do that. Um, but by being able to align to specific standards, we can actually make uh, a lot of processes simpler for folks without having it locked into any one person's servers or any one person's uh, specific, yeah, uh, specific <laughs> architecture. Yeah, right. No, I, I totally get that. Um, so I was just thinking in terms of, okay, so if I were to use the NFT storage thing tomorrow, how how would you know that I'm not an actual NFT minter or an NFT owner? What's the criteria? That, that's that's kind of what kind of confused me a little bit. Or maybe it's just that. Yeah, it's it's pretty high trust. That's, that's fine. I mean, that's uh, that's uh, uh, cool. I'm sure uh, there will be some uh, sort of uh, policing anyway, because at at the end of the day, Filecoin is the marketplace, right? So somebody will basically start pointing out, "Hey, this is not, this is not uh, kosher," and and remove it. I mean, I, I think one of the nice things about so, like with IPFS, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, it's all CIDs. I think the scale of data that we're talking about isn't particularly large. Um, there's definitely like the potential for some abuse, and I, there is like certain terms of services, uh, so like specific types of content that at least for our IPFS nodes, those are not things that we are going to process. Um, anyone mm -hmm. can upload their own IPFS content and do it themselves if they would like to. Um, but yeah, so I think for NFT storage, I think the distinguishing thing is like, this is a public good itself. And so people might abuse that public good and we have some processes in place for that. Um, but by and large, we want to bias towards, yeah, for people who are creating, give them like the tools that they need. Um, and then, yeah, if, if what we see is someone uploads like, hundreds of terabytes of non-NFT content, uh, that may be a different problem. Um, yeah, but, yeah. yeah. So to diverge a little bit, uh, Jonathan, and uh, I, I know you mentioned this in passing about uh, NFTs and metaverses, and this is kind of an industry question. So uh, wh where do you see uh, metaverses playing a role in the future of NFTs going forward? Like, do you, do you see metaverses as something that we that's just five years away or uh, i know facebook has been trying to build one uh, it's called uh, horizon worlds and uh, recently the, there was this report that uh, showed how bad it looks and you know how the graphics uh, in the game look like a decade old uh, even from regular uh, vr game standards right so uh just want to pick your brain on you know what do you think uh, are, we, are we anywhere close to metaverses being a real thing uh, especially in the decentralized space good question i mean I think it's hard to tell. Uh, sometimes when you're looking at these things as sort of like exponentials, uh, it's hard to tell where you are on that curve. Um, I think one way to sort of look at it is sort of like the, like what's reducing the friction and what's increasing the incentives for these things to happen. I do think this idea of NFTs helps a lot on the incentive side. So it like gives a bigger carrot for why would people want to participate and how do you make it reasonable for people to participate in these systems? Um, I think to me, that's like one of the things that might actually accelerate the roadmap here, primarily just because you sort of have this additional like sort of like pushing force uh, that is like both creating the, the funding that can make it possible for people to build experiences that actually get engagement and create that sort of like flywheel. 
um, as well as forgetting like the user excitement where people have a vested stake. You look at what's happening with the Board Ape Yacht Club uh, and that new sort of like metaverse that they've been building as well. Um, so I think there's something there where it's like, what actually moves us forward towards that reality? And I think you could think of blockchains and sort of the open metaverse sort of world as like a pushing force that's getting us closer. Um, I think for the version of the metaverse that like you could think the, the metas of the world are sort of like pincer attacking to, it's sort of this like full immersive, um, like you wear the Oculus, you have like the control labs band on your arm, you like feel like it's an extension of your body. Um, I think that has a lot of hardware problems that sort of come in. I actually think they probably are doing a lot of work on that front and it requires a lot of investment um, and like the lead times for these devices and supply chains, like I don't think that stuff comes overnight, um, but I think you could sort of squint at like why has Facebook made some of the investments that they've made, at, made? Uh, like whether it be those Ray-Bans glasses or whether it be um, like the portal devices. I think a lot of that is how do you basically subsidize the investment in hardware pipelines and like supply chains? Um, so I would imagine that there's a lot on their roadmap that they're building towards. Um, I would also imagine that it's going to take a while for that to like fully materialize. Um, but I think I, I would still look at it sort of as like this pincer attack. And the harder thing to predict is, yeah, uh, again, when you're on this sort of like exponential, how quickly do those things come <laughs> that like close the gap faster? Um, I think the software side and the social push is more likely to happen at a faster pace than the sort of like full immersive like hardware thing. But that's just a function of hardware is way harder than bytes, you know. <laughs> um, but like inside of it, like if we're talking about like by the end of the decade, where are we? I do think if we're just looking at the trend of like storage is getting more dense, you look at even your iPhone and like what's the compute power they're able to pack into that thing. I think this idea that we have like very powerful like user located or user owned devices i think that reality is definitely like manifesting right um so i think the idea that you can build high quality environments and things that will be more powerful that to me doesn't seem like such an insane bet um and it's really just looking at like what's the trend of hardware uh not on like new hardware but just like what is the hardware that like commonly exists today that seems like it's pretty like you can see where those like lines are going right Right. Again, looking to the future, Jonathan, uh, what are some of the challenges that you still see potentially ahead uh, when you look when it comes to you know IPFS and Filecoin and supporting use cases like NFTs? Uh, what 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 do you what do you think? Uh, do you think it's a solved problem, or do you think there are uh, still some challenges that uh, that need to be uh, worked on? No, definitely not a solved problem. I think we're still very much in the early innings. Um, building off of even of my last point, I think like one way to look at why is content addressing a thing to bet on is really actually a function of, <laughs> yeah, what is the landscape of consumer devices going to look like over the next decade, right? Um, if we think that more and more storage and more and more compute is going to be available local to a user, it's going to make more and more sense to cache data like if your user has like ter many terabytes of storage local to them, it's just going to be, and they also have massive processing power with them. It's going to be cheaper to keep content local and faster for applications to do processing client side than it will be to ship it back and forth to data centers, especially if those files get larger and larger, if we're talking about like large videos or things like that. 
Um, so I think that's one of the things to keep an eye on. And I think that's to me like one of the sort of like trends that I think is flowing in the favor of some of this Web3 stuff. Um, and so, yeah, when we think about IPFS and Filecoin, I think one of the other challenges though, the things that have to be worked on is when we think of the traditional internet stack, there's many decades of work that's gone in there, uh, both in hardening, but also building out physical infrastructure that just makes things easier. And I think we're starting, uh, I think we've made incredible progress, but there's still quite a lot to go. So when we're talking about like the abstractions that people wanna work with, if we're talking about different even versions of things like IPFS that can embed in the different types of devices uh, we don't want to have to run Go IPFS in a thousand different locations. We want to be able to tune the type of IPFS that we're running to the different environment that we're operating in. Um, so I think there's a lot of work that has to happen in order to make it possible. Um, and I think that's like one of the huge opportunities as well for teams that are interested in building on that stuff. I think on the Filecoin side, equally, equally large challenges. I think we're at this early stage where the network itself has bootstrapped large amounts of hardware uh, and continues to grow. I think on the storage side, there's some really exciting technical advancements that can like open the aperture for what are the use cases that are super well served. So it's not just sort of like these cold archival use cases where verifiability is the core property. I think you get closer to some of the hot storage use cases that people are looking at. With the retrieval markets, there's like permissionless CDNs, where again, more of a bet about like uh, what is going to be the thing that is the rate limiting factor. Is it going to be transfer? Is it going to be like storage uh, and like distribution. Um, and so I think like there's a lot on Filecoin's roadmap that I think uh, still needs to be realized. Uh, but I think, yeah, with a lot of these projects, it's more about not, you, you wanna have the right vision for like what's the end state, like what's at the top of the mountain. And then you're looking for how do you find the path of least gradient to climb the mountain, you know? One other thing actually that, that I was thinking about, which I'm not sure uh, Filecoin uh, or prop, perhaps IPFS and Filecoin are working on that I'm not aware of, is uh, is again the concept of verifiability, right? So when you think about how verifiability is done, at least based on my limited understanding of uh, of how it works, is it's based on content hashes, right? So you're basically taking a file and you're hashing it and you're basically saying, okay, anything, any file that uh, that can be hashed to the same hash value uh, is, 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 is uh, that, that verifies that, that, that that's the same file. But if you take, say, like an image, like you talked about the Beeple image, right? So the Beeple image basically if you see, is it's a collage of, uh, I think the images of 10 years of his life or something like that, right? Uh, where he took, uh, pictures every day. Now, uh, I could, if as, as a counterfeiter, <laughs> I could basically take that entire image, maybe change one pixel in one corner, and then I'll come up with a completely different content hash and then basically try to sell it as my, my take on, uh, or my, my version of, uh, people or whatever, right? And it, from a, computational perspective, those would be two different files. But if you look at it as a person or as a human, uh, it will be the same file uh, and that one pixel probably would not be even noticed. So maybe that's one of the areas have, that you've been kind of investing on and to try and see, okay, how do how do you actually prevent that kind of counterfeiting or problem uh, challenges with NFT, uh, somebody unscrupulous kind of going and playing around with the NFT uh, image and changing it and then trying to create a new NFT with it. Yeah, so it's interesting. Uh, so I have not been working on this specifically, but I know I have a number of teams in our ecosystem. Um, so like one interesting feature, uh, I mean, even when you think of these hashes is 
like you can always run other tools. So like using perceptual mm -hmm. hashes as an example on top of these things, and then you can create a map of like for these perceptual hashes, what are the CIDs that are sort of like mapping to the same uh, p-hash? And I think like that's one strategy that folks are using not just for NFTs, but also just for like trust and safety tools. Um, I think like one of the interesting applications of say like this is something like BitScreen is a team that's working on this for trust and safety in general um, for Web3. Um, and it's actually interesting if you like zoom out and think about the implications of being able to do this as a service and what that sort of means. Um, I think I was listening to a podcast where Facebook was saying they spend about $5 billion just for their trust and safety team. And it's interesting, uh, both impressive the amounts of money they're spending, but also recognizing that most teams cannot spend $5 billion to do that. And you think yep. about what sort of barrier to entry that means. But if you could turn this into a service where there's teams that, like, Bitstreet, or, like Bitscreen or other folks that can specialize in trust and safety tools, that can be plug-in architectures, uh, that actually could reduce the cost of spinning up competitive social media companies and other... Yeah, I'm sure there is a lot of there's a lot of work that uh, AI and uh, machine learning also can do, right? Uh, because well, I to say, I think like CIDs are not like the rate limiting thing per se. I think like you layer CIDs along with other technologies in order to address some of these problems. Right. So, so do you think that that would be at some future point uh, one of the other enabling uh, things, uh, like you mentioned, uh, with the you talked about the IPNS, right? The naming service, just like that, you'd may, maybe have like a validation or verification or a trusting service that 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 kind of uh, a developer could just plug into to kind of make sure that these kind of things don't happen. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if it's going to be a specific single service, but I think there is already a few services that are springing up, and I think. Hopefully, we'll have like a market of these services as well. So it's not like there's one canonical source of truth, but there's like a marketplace that people can rely on and cross-verify and do all of those good things. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think we're already seeing some of that spring up today, which is pretty exciting. Cool. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm conscious of the time, and I know Jonathan, uh, you probably have a lot of things to do as well. So uh, I'm going to kind of. Uh, conclude our discussion. Uh, was, I thought it was a very interesting and very in-depth discussion. So I want to thank you for your uh, uh, patience and for for uh, for enlightening us on IPFS, Filecoins, NFT storage, and 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 all the challenges and opportunities out there. Thanks, Jonathan. Just my two cents. Uh, I think it's an interesting time that we had this conversation. Uh, you know, at the backdrop of Ethereum merge getting completed. And uh, one might say that we are in a bear market, uh, but there's still a lot of cool stuff happening in crypto and uh, NFTs are definitely a big part of it. So yes, uh, we are excited to see what Filecoin is building for NFTs uh, and uh, wishing you and your team all the best going forward. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it. Once again, that was Jonathan Victor from Filecoin. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play and Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us at bcdialogues.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.